G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants to him and entrusted his wealth to them. To one man, he gave five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And another, one bag. Each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who received five bags went at once and put his money to work and received five more. Also, the man who received two bags gained two more. But the one who received one bag went out, dug a hole in the ground and he hid his master's money. After a long while, the servant's master returned to settle the accounts. The man who received five bags brought out five more. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have received Five more, the master replied. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And the man with two bags, he said, Master, You entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have two more. And the master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in the master's happiness. The man with one bag came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, so I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. The master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take that bag of gold and give it to the man with 10 bags for whoever has 
will have more and they will have in abundance. But whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. I think it's pretty hard to argue this morning that, uh, or hard to argue with Maya's point that she made that we are in a blessed church, are we not? Uh, it has been such an encouragement already this morning to uh, worship in the way that we've been led by the band, to hear the word read by Kylie there, uh, and I pray now that we would be just as encouraged, just as challenged, just as built up by the word of God. So uh, to do that today, we're going to be looking at this parable of the talents. If you remember back to a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, we, were, we explained we're going to be looking at some of the parables of Jesus, and Andrew started the year with us in the parable of the ten virgins, or I think it was a kids in service, so it was the ten, ten bridesmaids. Uh, and in that, in that parable, there was, the, there was a, a future fact, a decisive division, and a present preparation. Uh, and as, the, as Matthew continues his account of Jesus' life, straight after that parable is this parable we're going to look at today, the ten, or the talent, sorry. Uh, and this, this parable is a fleshing out of that present preparation from the parable before it. What does it look like to uh, keep waiting in a practical sense? Where the, where the ten bridesmaids set us up to make sure we were keeping on waiting, keeping on watch for Jesus, the talents tell us what that looks like as we practically live out our lives now. So as we prepare to get into that, I'd love for you to pray with me, pray for me, uh, as we prepare to get into God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you have shown yourself to us, that we can know you through your Word. Um, we pray that as we get into that now, that you would indeed be uh, revealing yourself to us, giving us a fuller and clearer picture of who you are, that you might be at work impacting our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if it's allowed yet. I'm not sure if enough time has passed, but I have uh, reflected back on COVID times with a highlight, uh, an undoubted highlight for me. If you remember right back towards the start of 2020, it was about April, May time, uh, and we gathered as a church online for an art exhibition we called Unveiled. We were spending some time in the book of Revelation, uh, and this exhibition was an expression of uh, the way people saw this book. It's, such a, it's a book full of imagery, full of uh, craziness a lot of the times, a lot of things that are hard to express in words. So uh, an expression of art was a great way to um, show the way that people were responding to the words in this book. 
Uh, and there was one image in particular that really struck me as I sat in my lounge room taking in this art. Uh, our very own uh, Tia Ridgewell, who's part of our congregation here, submitted this uh, piece of work that was uh, striking. It was uh, a lot to take in, and it felt like it kind of smacked you in the face as you uh, were taking in some uh, some paintings of color, some uh, different uh, things that have been put together, and then this came up on the screen, and it was, it was a lot. It elicited a response. Um, I'm definitely not an art critic, but uh, when, you're, when you're in art class, uh, you, you look at something, you look at a piece of work, and uh, you take in more than just what you see. You take in who the artist was, what was going on in their life when they uh, put this together, what was going on in history as this piece was coming together that might have influenced the way that they expressed themselves. But with all of that, the way that we view that picture will impact the way that we respond to it. The picture that we have of the picture will impact uh, what our response is like. Maybe you look at this picture and you think, it's just a waste of a good onesie. Maybe you're a new parent and you're, those things are precious right now. Maybe you look at it and see brutality, pain and suffering. Or maybe you look at it and see a risen Jesus rising above what he has gone through to make a way for people to be with him. The way we view a picture will impact the way we respond to it. And as we get into the talents parable today, I want to show, I want us to see that the way we view God, the picture we have of God will impact the way we live in the here and now. To understand that through the lens of this parable, to understand why that's important, why it matters what we hear, what we do here and now. We're going to uh, look at the parable in three headings under the good, the bad, and the ugly. First, though, you always start with the good news, so the good. Jesus creates uh, a scene for his listeners to imagine a man going on a journey. Very easy to imagine today after Kylie's brilliant retelling of this passage. Uh, and while he's going away, he wants his stuff looked after. He figures the best way to do that is to call on his servants, so he divides it up between them and entrusts them with his possession. And the first thing to note is following this act, following that uh, division of his property between his servants, he does indeed go. He leaves. It's a simple enough action, even an understandable action. It's pretty hard to go on a journey if you don't indeed uh, go. But keep in mind as we consider this, that this parable comes in the middle of Jesus illustrating a larger picture of what will happen at the end of time. What is the kingdom of heaven going to look like? What is it going to look like on the day of Jesus' return? And through this simple action, Jesus explains that a key part of that unfolding story is that the master will be away for a time. There's going to be people that won't believe in God because they say Jesus just isn't coming back. To be fair, it's been a long time now. Where is Jesus now? It's a simple but can be a compelling argument. 
If he is the king, why hasn't he come back already? Surely with the state of the world around us, if he could do it, he would have done it already and ushered in this new kingdom of peace. Jesus will spend time away, but why? Why this long? I find myself getting frustrated with this more often than I'd like. When things are getting difficult or uh, going through a hard time, I'll find myself thinking, can't you just make it happen now, God? Can't you just come back now and get this party started already? I know what it is that we look forward to. I know that's going to be better than what I'm experiencing right now, so can't you just come back already? Jesus will go for a while But why? Why this long? I want to let that question sit for a little while and come back to it because to get a a clearer understanding, we need to first take in the actions of the next characters in this parable. There's three servants, three servants that are entrusted with different amounts of their master's possessions. Differing amounts based on their abilities. The amounts are measured in talents in the ESV and the NIV that uh, Kylie read that was in bags of gold. Bags of gold. Uh, depending where you look, the amounts given are uh, worth different amounts. But the central idea, the thing to take away, that even one talent, one bag of gold, was a, a large sum of money. It was a worthwhile sum of money. These differing amounts have been given over to the servants, not just to hold on to, but they've been entrusted to them. Not just to protect, but to oversee. This journey that the master is going on, the, the, that the master is going away for, is going to be for a significant time. He's going to be gone for a while. He isn't looking for security guards, he wants investors. He has entrusted his possessions to his servants so each of them would oversee their good use. There is work for them to do while their master is away. And the first two servants do just that. They take what they've been entrusted with and immediately they get to work. Whatever trading looked like for them, I'm not uh, picturing for them going to have a a meeting with their stockbroker or property portfolio manager at this time, but I'm picturing like lots of sheep and goats changing hands, maybe lots of shouting and yelling down at the market. Whatever, Whatever that looked like though, they were successful. Both made a 100% profit. And notice how they interact with their master on his return. They both have this same statement. Master, you delivered to me an amount of talents. Here I have taken that and produced more. I love the way that Kylie Reed told that. There was this big smile on her face as they presented the work that they had done to their master. There is a sense in this interaction between servant and master that there's a recognition of generosity and partnership with their master. Master, this amount that you delivered to me, this amount that you handed over and entrusted that I would be capable of looking after for you, here, see what I have produced with it. 
In this generous picture, it's only enhanced and we see the master's response. A response to both servants that is the same and equal, both receiving praise, commendation, and reward. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I think that replicated initial interaction and response is worth noting. Because nowhere in the storyline do we see the first servant saying, look how much more I've made than these other servants. Or the second servant saying, ah, but you've given this first servant more and I haven't maybe produced as much, but I've, I've still done a bit. No comparison, just faithful service with what they'd been given. And their master's response, no higher reward for the one who had made more with more, but for both faithful, both faithful servants, equal reward, equal praise, equal commendation. How much time do we waste in church comparing ourselves to others and what they're capable of and not us? In longing to be able to do just what someone else could do and maybe then we could be more effective for God. If only I knew my Bible like Kylie. If only I could sing like Dom. If only I could be on fire like Maya. Maybe then God could use me. I have to admit that whenever I hear Dom sing, I do kind of think that. But. but let's not be a people who fall into the trap of comparison. There is much work to be done. We all have a role to play, and there is much freedom in how we can go about doing that. If there's any benefit of Jesus' not yet return, it has to be that there is fruit to our action of playing our part in that work. As a faithful servant of Jesus, you are secure in your reward. Your eternal place in the joy of your master is secured. Live in the freedom of that and invest whatever you have in making sure as many others as possible share in that joy with you. on the negative sense, if Jesus were to return right now, if that delay was to come to an end, who are the people in your life that wouldn't be entering into that joy with you? Surely our time is better spent investing whatever we have in turning that reality around rather than worrying about who can do what who can do what in what way and to what extent. Before we move away from the good in this parable, I want to note one last encouragement. Uh, one last encouragement in another simple yet important action. Just as simply as Jesus, or as the master went, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants came. 
Even though the journey had been significant, even though a long time had passed, the master returns. It's the other part of our response in wrestling with the not yet aspect of the return of Jesus. That in the the struggle of living out this day to day, living out these lives as good and faithful servants, in the face of ridicule for standing firm in the faith, in the midst of tears as we struggle with the reality of a not yet kingdom, in the difficulty we persevere because we know he will return. When your picture of Jesus is clear, when you see him in all of his beauty, in all of his truth, when you're in relationship with Jesus, the promise of his return is a huge encouragement. It's such an encouragement because you can confidently know that on the day of his return, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. You can confidently know that all of those struggles and pain and tears will be no longer, that as you enter into that joy, you will see face to face that which you have held on to. As I spent time in this parable and considering the implications for that final day, my mind wandered uh, to what that uh, parable would have been like if this interaction might have been fleshed out in more detail between the first two servants and Jesus. The picture that formed in my mind was the kinder student racing out of the classroom to show the fruits of their labors on that day to the over-enthusiastic parents. Uh, Thankfully, God is a little more generous than us considering our works, because let's be honest, those artworks don't always really deserve a place on the fridge. But in the mind of that kinder student racing out, there's not an iota of doubt of the response they're going to get. There's no slinking shuffle wondering in fear of retribution. There's no uh, sheepish steps towards an unexpected parent wondering if this work is going to be good enough. Whatever they have produced, they race out of those doors, smile beaming, arms in the air, holding up a mishmash of colors, thinking this is the best thing ever, knowing that all they're going to hear is, wow, Straight to the fridge with this one. This is incredible, your best yet. They know the person they're interacting with. They have a relationship with them. They have experienced their love and generosity, and so they're confident of the outcome. Jesus is returning. He has promised it. The day will come. For those in relationship with him, that is a day to look forward to. So what happens when the picture of that relationship is distorted? What happens when our picture of Jesus doesn't match who he actually is? Let's take a look at this third servant and get into uh, the bad of this parable. We know that uh, the servant had been given one talent, Uh, Not as much as the other two, but still a significant amount. We know his response from verse 18 was to dig a hole and bury it, hide the money in the ground. 
Uh, read with me after this from verse 24 to see the way he interacts with his master on his return and note the differences in the way he responds to his master and the first two servants has responded. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground here. You have what is yours. The connection, the relationship here is at best cold. There's no sense of partnership or generosity, only distance and fear. Despite the, the, the reality that we already know about this master, that he's been revealed as a man of extravagant generosity toward his faithful servants, this third servant has a distorted view. He sees him as hard, as unfair. And because of this view, his actions have been impacted. Because he didn't see the truth about his master, he was afraid. Too scared to even try anything with what he had been entrusted, and so he plays it as safe as he possibly could and buries it in the ground. Being a follower of Jesus can be difficult. It certainly doesn't seem to be getting any easier. There's going to be plenty of challenges, but that challenge is infinitely harder if we don't first have a clear view of who Jesus actually is. In your mind... Is he a loving king who decrees the law of the land in full knowledge of its operation with the right to uphold judgment? Or is he a distant, power-hungry tyrant with a mind set on power and control? Or maybe more subtly, he's an aging man sitting on a far-off throne that means well, but he's lost touch with reality, and really, he should probably hand over control to a younger, more modern protege. In your mind, is he a roaring lion preparing for a triumphant victory? Or a toothless tiger fumbling, lost, trying to find his way home? Is Jesus Lord of your life, deserving of all praise, honor, and loyalty? Or an optional extra you have the ability to call on when necessary? The picture we have of God, the hope or fear that instills for the day he will return, or even if he will return at all, that will impact the way we live in the here and now. Instead of being able to view the talent as something that had been delivered to him, entrusted to him because his master knew that he was capable of producing with it, the third servant says to the master, this is what I did with your talent. Take back what is yours. Through the distortion and fear, there is no freedom. 
no freedom to take a risk, no freedom to make a mistake, no freedom to do anything but the bare minimum in the crippling hope that maybe he'll at least avoid punishment by not losing the money. When our picture of God is that of the harsh taskmaster, we're crippled by fear. So scared of doing the wrong thing, we're consumed by needing to do the right thing on the off chance we might guess correctly and avoid punishment. But when we see God in His fullness, not narrowly with the only task as the one who will return in the judgment, but as the loving one who willingly sent His Son, as the one who he himself made a way for us to make, his, make sure his return would be a good day for us, as the one who continues to act in our present reality to strengthen, to uphold, to equip us. When we see God in all his brilliance, those chains of fear are broken and we are fr- set free to live out our lives to live out our lives not in fear but in courageous action, to live out our lives not in slavery to sin but in victorious battle, to live out our lives not in cold loneliness but in the warmth of the Father's embrace. The way we view God matters and it will impact the way we live our lives now. We've seen through the good and the bad of this parable that the picture we have of God will do this. It's going to impact the way we live out our day to day. So as we come to our final point and consider the ugly, I want to look at why the way we live out our lives matters. Why does it matter that our view of God impacts what we're doing here and now? Read with me from verse 26 the master's response to this third servant. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. In this response, the master is accepting the server's assessment for the sake of argument, and he's going to make his judgment upon those terms, that picture that the servant had, but importantly, he doesn't affirm, his, uh, affirm this judgment's accuracy. He doesn't affirm this picture that the third servant has as being accurate, because we've seen from the broader parable that that's just not true that this picture is distorted. It's as if to say, so you thought I was this mean and unfair businessman, did you? Well, if that is what you believe, then surely at least you could have taken my money and given it to the bank and returned it with interest. I'm not sure what inflation was like during 33 AD, but even if at least 5%, it's not 100%, but it's at least something. The assessment of these actions is swift and straight to the point. You wicked and slothful servant. You wicked and slothful servant, the master begins. And then the punishment as we continue uh, in verse 28. 
So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not as if this third servant has done nothing. But because of his distorted view of his master and not knowing him well or having a real relationship with him to know him well, his actions don't match with being associated with him. As a result, instead of entering into the joy of his master, there is only eternal separation. We need to recognize that in this parable, this third servant isn't a representative of people distant from God. The third servant is meant to be a warning to those who would call themselves followers of Jesus. To the one associated in some sense with Jesus, but who misinterprets his character and lacks meaningful, real relationship with him. A person who is a Christian of sorts, but has never really trusted Jesus as a source of grace. Their picture of God is distorted. They are disobedient in their inner heart and in the final judgment, found to be no Christian at all. What we do in the here and now matters because it's evidence of our relationship with God. It's an outworking of the picture we have of who God is. In God's care for us, He has given us signs and assurances of our security in Him. Often we'll share in communion to remember what it costs to bring us into relationship, to celebrate the relationship we have now, and to look forward to the fullness and consummation of that relationship when we're ultimately brought together. Next week, as we cast our eyes to uh, the vision that God might have for our church in 2024, we're going to celebrate with new brothers and sisters in the waters of baptism, a sign that we have died to our old self, uh, sharing in the death of Jesus, raising to new life, putting on the new self and sharing in His resurrection. As we take care in the way we live in the here and now, we put our faith to work. It's a sign of being a genuine disciple, a genuine follower of Jesus. Not that those works earn us a place in heaven, simply evidence that proves we are real followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, assurance of our relationship with Him. It'd be easy to take this parable and think that the response is to to work out what my gifts are, what are the talents that God has given me, and how should I be putting them to work? And to be fair, uh, that is part of the story. There is a sense that we should be working uh, working that out with an understanding that it doesn't matter what that is, but whatever I have, invest it in kingdom growth. 
We are saved by faith alone, but our faith isn't ours alone. It isn't to be hidden away and then unwrapped and presented on entry into heaven. It should be visibly present in your life here and now. But the question this parable should more prominently raise is not what am I doing with my gifts, but what is my attitude towards God? What is the current picture that I see of God? This parable provides us with a tool to do a stock take on that. I know we're getting close to the end of January already, but if you could humor me with the ability to maybe make some new goals for 2024. As you step into this year, what would it look like to do a healthy stock take on your life? Using the tool of this parable, what are my actions saying about the way I view God? What does my life my day-to-day in the here and now say about the way I view God? Are there actions in your life that demonstrate a lack of trust? Actions that suggest a stubbornness to submit, that that show you have room to grow in love, in patience, in kindness, in disciplines. What are your actions saying about the way you view God? What element of your relationship with God are they showing you need to invest in to sharpen and correct the picture you have painted of who God is? In this spirit of courageous action, Uh, the freedom of our relationship with Jesus offers. I wonder if we can't uh, break one of the rules we've just suggested as we close out our time together. As you take stock take of your life, what would it look like to break the rule of comparison and measure it up against the life of Jesus? Even while we have no chance, uh, even while we know we have no chance to meet that standard, Jesus still explains to his followers that he is the example. He is the one to look to. That as a follower of Jesus, your your call is to love one another as Jesus has loved you, to serve one another as Jesus has served you. We spoke about the sign that baptism are pointed to, are putting to death the old self while putting on the new, a self created to be like him in righteousness and holiness acutely aware of our inadequacy, but still desiring to live for Jesus in every aspect and at every moment? Are your values aligned with his values? Do your priorities match what he considers important? Is Is the course of your life plotted with the goal of glorifying God or glorifying yourself? Because the other side of this comparison is the result that connection in relationship with him proves. That our ultimate success in this life doesn't rest on these efforts. That we persevere without stress of getting close enough or being good enough. That we can be as excited as the kinder kid and look forward to the day of Jesus' return because we know that we trust not in our work but in his. 
Trust that when he declared as he hung and died on the cross that it is finished, it was a decisive statement that he completed the work that he came to do. For all the times past, present, and future that we would fall short and create a separation in this relationship, he was paying the price to close that gap so that there would be nothing left for us to do. For those in relationship with him, their eternal place in the joy of their master has been secured. Jesus will return. Just as sure as he will return, there is no escaping the reality that on his return, there will be an accounting made. A judgment that will dispel any picture that has tried to make him out as all accepting and unfazed by what we have done with our lives in the here and now. He has spent time away on a journey, but he is coming back. He longs for that day to go well for us. In his death and resurrection, he has made a way for that, made a way for that day to go well for us. And in this collection of parables, in this part of Matthew's account of Jesus' life, he is shouting from the rooftops for everyone to hear how that day can go well for us. That in the waiting, there is work to be done. That as followers of Jesus, we don't sit with our heads in the sky, but we get to work with our nose to the grindstone. That anyone who would see for anyone who would see God for who he truly is, responding to him by entrusting their life into his hands and allowing their lives to be shaped and grown by him. There is offer of relationship and on the day of his return be welcomed into the joy of their master. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you truly are. That when we see you in all of your glory and respond to you, we are welcomed into relationship. Relationship with the freedom to live out our lives. Live out our lives for your glory living out our lives in the excited hope on the, of the day of your return. Lord, we look forward to that day. We can't wait to hear those words of good and faithful servant. But Lord, until that day, we pray that you would continue your work in us. We pray that you would continue to work through us. We pray that we would be courageous in our faith in you that our lives would be shaped by you, that they would be glorifying to you, and that they would ultimately point others to you, Lord. We lift up your name and pray in that name of Jesus. Amen.